Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we are so excited to have with us Martin Oderski, who I uh, got to work with long ago at TypeSafe on Scala stuff. And Martin, I'm sure many of you all know him, but he is the creator of Scala and uh, has been doing some amazing research with the Scala language at EPFL in Lausanne, a beautiful city on uh, Lake Lake Geneva, right in Switzerland. Yep. Yeah. Well, welcome, Martin. Good to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, James and Bruce. Yeah. So, uh, as you know, Bruce and I have been working on a book with Scala 3 and have just been loving a lot of the Scala 3 stuff that you have done. And so, um, I wanted to start by asking you, what are what are some of your favorite features in Scala 3? Oh, um, well... If I say indentation, then we can fill the rest of the podcast <laughs> with that. But, but no, I, I think we all agree that it's it, a desirable it really feature. My feature because it trans it, it really affects every line of code I write, and uh, every line of code I write, I just say, "Ah, oh, it's so liberating not to have to write these curly braces anymore and things like that." So yeah, day to day indentation, I guess. Uh, I, I, lo- I also love the indentation. This, I mean, it just looks so nice when I write code now. I've been using Python since the mid-90s, so obviously I like obviously. it. Obviously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, one question on that is, what's happening with the fewer braces syntax? Because on some of my Scala 3 code bases, I turned on the fewer braces syntax, and I love it. Like It's, it's like just even better, you know, it's... Can you uh, explain that? I, I'm not um, sure what you're talking So there's about. a experimental language feature called like fewer braces or something, and Martin can tell us more about it. But it makes it so that you you don't have to use braces like anywhere. And it is amazing. The only place that I think I've used, I use them now is in imports to do when you do multiple right. imports. That's, that's the only where, yeah, yeah. So fewer braces basically means if you have like a, a control structure like uh, a flat map with a long closure or a, or a log or something like that, then right now, you, if the argument is like a block with local definitions and you have to put it in braces, and now you just can finish the line with a colon and indent, and then the whole thing will be, become the, the function argument. Or you can do the same thing with, um, like if it's a map, then you can write just write xs dot map and then no braces, but just X arrow, and then new line indent, and that then the rest of the of, of the of the block. So basically, you don't need the, the braces anymore, almost anywhere except for imports, maybe. Yeah. So yeah. So um, I um, want to get this in as quickly as possible. We're getting some pushback from the tool vendors, uh, so IntelliJ and. Uh, Visual Studio, who say, well, wait, 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 not not so fast. We have to update our editors before because otherwise, the 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 tooling experience will suck. And uh, so I'm now currently pushing them to essentially prioritize that that they can get it in uh, for for Scala Meta and for for IntelliJ. And uh, I guess that's one of the hard things creating a programming language is that. You're not just creating it for me as a developer. <laughs> like you know, like you've got a lot of different people who who a change to a programming language is going to impact in a lot of different ways, and you have to kind of balance all those. 
Well, and it's yeah. like the Python two to three experience for me. It was just like, cool. This this is all good stuff. But then it took forever to get the libraries to to convert. Yeah, there's the library ecosystem yeah, is yeah. is one of the <laughs> one of the the groups that you have to balance needs with. Yeah. And... So that, there we have the one advantage is that we even from from three we can still run with two thirteen, so there's less less need. So you don't need to bifurcate the libraries, or at least not for the moment. You can still run with the old ones. Right. And uh, maybe that would be an interesting place to go next. Is how how did you do that? Was was Tasty the, really the foundation for being able to do that, or what what were the pieces that made it so that you could use two thirteen libraries in Scala three? And I've done it, and it's amazing that it works. <laughs> but I'm curious about how that actually came together. No, it's actually not. It has nothing to do with Tasty. It's no. uh, uh, because two thirteen doesn't doesn't program doesn't compile to Tasty. So uh, we just okay. basically unpickle the two thirteen as it is and uh, translate that. So that's. It sort of was, we had it from the start because when you bootstrap a thing, you need to run with some libraries. So we said, well, we, we need to be able to work with the 2.13 libraries. Or at the time when we started, it was 2.12 rather. And um, so we had to have from the start a, a reader for for the uh, 2.12, 2.13 uh, symbol information. And and then it was sort of, since the, the languages are not quite the same in some points, so we had to sort of deal with that uh, sort of make make map things and things like that it's, it's a lot of small things um, to to make that work but uh, yeah I mean since it the fact that it does work is a big help to a lot of people now yeah so were you ever okay I think probably the most impressive thing to me about Scala is the I, I don't know boldness of experimentation but um, <laughs> Were you ever like tempted to say, why don't we just leave Scala as it is and create a whole new language so we don't have all this, you know, baggage? Yeah, to carry don't around. have to worry about two thirteen interop and yeah, all the the yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So in the early phases of the Dotty project, I was sitting on the fence for for a long time to say, do we make a new language which just well, interop is always good because it saves you time and and work. You don't need to duplicate this stuff. So so I and I wasn't wanting to compromise on interop, but to say backwards source compatibility that that was a question for a long time. So um, and uh, it was so in a sense, Scala three is really understood like Python 2 and Python 3 and not like, let's say, C-sharp 2 and 3, where 3 is just the next number after 2. It really is a different language. And um, I the, the, the name choice was sort of to keep on sitting on the fence to say we, we, we it is a new language and it is sort of an evolution of the old language. Uh, so I, I didn't really want to sort of jump one way or the other completely. Uh, but before before the final Scala 3, there were certain things where we wanted to be more radical and in the end we weren't because we decided... Actually, it was, it was mostly the enthusiasm of the Scala community that started porting this stuff and uh, we said, well, actually, this can really fly. I mean, people are picking this up, people are enthusiastic and therefore we, we don't really want to make life sort of needlessly complicated just to do something new. So then we became more conservative as, as we reached the final version. I think. 
So for instance, one thing that uh, we didn't have from the start was higher kind of types. We had something else, which was sort of type, type name type parameters. So a sort of blend between type members and type parameters. I had a talk at Strange Loop a long time ago where I talked about that, about those ideas. And they turned out to be interesting, but uh, we realized that a lot of libraries wouldn't port. And so in the end, we buried these ideas and picked pick the, pick the, the same sort of rough overarching type structures in Scala 2. Of course, with new types like union types and enums and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so you're always having to balance, I think, as you as you want to move things forward, you have to also be thinking about where people are and how you're going to get them to where you want to go. Yeah. And and I guess what you're saying with like higher kind of types is sometimes making some compromises on what would be the maybe ideal versus what would be um, you know, more approachable or more adoptable by people. And that's got to, that, yeah. that tension that you live in as a language designer has to be really challenging. One thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think, it, and again, I could have this wrong, but I feel like earlier, you know, years before, you weren't that big of a fan of enums. And then I feel like you've become a pretty big fan of enums. Did I get that right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, so So in terms of philosophy, uh I think Scala started as a fairly small language. I mean, it was sure expressive, but uh, we were actually very conservative with adding features to the language. We wanted to have sort of the minimum possible that you could express things. And then enums did, were sort of not making the the, the bar because uh, uh, we thought, well, there, there is a way to sort of encode them with, with this enumeration. We had this enumeration data type in Scala 2, which was library only. The compiler wasn't affected by that at all. And they could do a sort of enum, uh, and but people hated it in the end. So so it was just too awkward. And so with Scala 3, I, uh, it's also in retrospect, we had more than 10 years of heavy use of Scala, where we said, well, what are the pain points? What are people really finding finding difficult? And can we do something about that? So, and... And we are, we're not going overboard with features, but we, we, we are sort of a bit more liberal to say, well, if there's a pain point that can be solved by the language, let's solve it by the language. So in enums were one of these things where, where the pain point was. But also the thing, Scala, I think, is still so that we want to, we don't want to really have single-use features. We want to sort of have more transcending features. So enums got sort of sold to me when uh, I figured out that we could do both algebraic data types and classical enums in one in one construct and we could sort of be fluid from one to the other and say well if we do that then i'm not claiming it's we are it's new i think swift does something very similar but uh sort of that that sort of brought it home to say well we have two point points the traditional enums how do you set up a set of constants and the other was uh if you wanted to emulate an algebraic data type in scala then you had to write a bunch of case classes and it was rather heavyweight compared to like the alternatives in languages that had them natively. So so we said, well, if you can essentially uh, swap those two flies, then uh, let's do that. Yeah, catch, huh. catch two birds with one stone. I guess that's one of the things that I've appreciated about Scala is the attempt to find 
kind of the generalizations and then build the nice syntactic sugar things on top of those generalizations. And so, um, yeah, I think enums and ADTs are a great example of exactly that is like, like the enums are really nice in Scala 3. We've, as we've been writing the book, we've used them in a number of places and it just feels really nice. But then to have the underpinnings of ADTs and when you want to use ADTs, that also feels really nice. But yeah, to have that, that based on a, on a common generalization, I think, um, is a, a good approach that I appreciate. Well, and it, it takes time to discover that, right? Like mm-hmm. to discover that you can do that. The the dis- oh. discovering yeah. the generalizations can be really hard. Oh yeah. yeah. So it seems like you use enums when you have like a fixed number of values, or you know that that isn't huge. And then if you're beyond that, then you use a class that you define as an ADT. Um, well, uh, yeah, like what's a, yeah, what's a good well, example oh, of when yeah. you would use a, a union ADT versus a enum? Ah, okay, a union versus an or, uh, no intersection. Sorry, no, right. it's, it's union. You would yeah. say union. Yeah. Uh, would you use a union? Uh, well, I guess the. I don't usually use union for unions for that because I, I have the impression that sort of the, the structural typing is sort of tends to have more verbose types and be worse for inference. So basically when you say, well, a type has these three values, then I think it's better to write an enum and says, well, that's a type and those are the three values. Whereas a union type could be anything. You can union anything with anything else. And also it's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, more difficult to essentially then pattern match on it and things like that, I think. Yeah. So we were also going to ask about Scala the, um, the approach of, of trying to, well, I think partly to help move people from two to three, but also if you have some features that you decided maybe weren't the best idea to help move people away from them. Yeah. Is that the right? way of thinking about it yeah 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 sure yeah well in scala 3 you actually removed a number of features from scala 2 and it seems like automating helping people move away from those things through like scala fix rules is really beneficial to the developer community it's like you you want to be able to do these experiments and sometimes you discover that the experiment was was not correct or failed or whatever and then you want to you need people to be able to use a thing so that you can get feedback so you can evaluate whether the experiment was successful or not but then if it was unsuccessful you got to be able to move people off of that thing right, and it right, seems like yeah. scholafix is is part of that strategy for how you how you can be can do these experiments in the language and then when they fail, move, move people. And we write, yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 the point. Yeah, it's that's an interesting. For. It's a contrast with the way Java's been doing it because they've yeah. been introducing experimental features, and then sometimes they'll withdraw them before they put them in, which I don't, I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see how well that works. Yeah, because it seems like committing to it 
enough for people to actually use it and find out whether it works or not is a different experience than saying, yeah. hey, we have this thing. And I, my, my inclination is, well, I'm not going to use it until it's really in the language. Yeah. But I, I think the thing we removed in two, I'm not sure they were meant as experiments. I think they were really what sort of we thought would be state of the art at the time. And it's just that we learned we had a, have a lot more experience now about these things that certain things are uh, just uh, have have better ways to do it now. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's in, like based on your understanding at the time, you did something one way, and then you later, maybe through that, learned that there was a better way to to approach yeah, that. Or, yeah. And maybe a. a um, can you give us an example of something you pulled out of Scala two in Scala three? You know that get removed from from Scala with Scala three to make well, it more concrete. Uh, some some really uh, uh, simple things were like the compound types with the width, which have been in the, replaced by the intersections, uh, which reflects essentially a type that's better behaved than the previous one. So we thought that the syntax should change. And then there's, of course, the, the big, the biggest, the elephant in the room is all the old macro system, which was essentially, uh, which got added uh, really quite unchecked. And uh, we, we we meant to control this thing. I still remember the meeting. I think it was Josh Zureth proposing it to say, well, you have to put experimental on that thing. We're not ready to ship that yet. And we did. And then the next thing we found out is that the world at large completely ignored us and used these things anyway and more and more heavily. And uh, they, they stayed experimental until the last day of their life, but that didn't prevent anyone from, from using them. So now in Scala 3, actually, we take this much more seriously. We have experimental features, like fewer braces was one of them. and uh, But there, there are essentially much more strict stricter usage conditions which i think we got from rust that you can use an experimental feature only if your code is is itself labeled experimental so it must be transitive or else you're running in a nightly or snapshot compiler so nothing on a release compiler so it means we really sort of limit the use of experimental much more than uh, than, than than before probably more like I, I don't know what java's policy is but i can imagine it's similar yeah, and I, macros and and metaprogramming are, I think, a really good illustration of exactly this. This thing is like you macros were added in, and it clearly showed that there was a lot of power that people wanted to harness yeah. because so many people began building amazing, mind blowing things with macros. But then you spent how many PhD years researching how to give people that power but do it in a way that that was um had other benefits you know was was beneficial for the compiler beneficial for type soundness beneficial for tooling like you know so you wanted to i don't know like like you spent a lot of time researching how to make that metaprogramming system better in yeah. scala 3 it was was basically one 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 PhD student's work, so six years, something like that, plus a postdoc, plus of course I was involved as well. Uh, uh, and uh, this one actually builds builds on like stuff done in other languages. So what we have is uh, 
somewhat similar, not the same, but somewhat similar to what you would find in, let's say, Meta OCaml. And there are also sort of links to what people do in template Haskell and things like that. So these, there's sort of a more a tradition for doing these things in, at least in functional languages. Uh, so yeah. we followed that to some degree. Would it ever so, make sense to start with the macro system and then build the language around that? Uh, good question. Yeah. Because, like you know, when meta, you have, start with metaprogramming and then get to programming. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's basically the Lisp approach, right? Uh, and I haven't seen that work for types yet, with, for typed languages yet, which doesn't mean that you couldn't do it, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, there's type racket and things like that, but I don't know how, how, uh, how far you can push it and how sort of pervasive it is. But in, so, so in retrospect, I mean, how Scala was created a long time ago, before Scala, I did something super, super uh, restricted, which was sort of a more pure uh, calculus language built on something called joint calculus, which is itself a variant of pi calculus. So there was a lot of concurrency and things like that. And there was a super simple language built on that. And uh, everything was done with encodings. Um, so you essentially, you would you didn't have classes, you had records only, and then you built things up from these things. And it turned out to be super annoying uh, to program this thing <laughs> because it's just these encodings, you had to repeat them all over again. So at the time we said, well, now let's get rid of these encodings and just do some sort of solid uh, practical abstractions like classes and pattern matching and things like that. Uh, and that was the origin of Scala at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but in retrospect, we could have said, well, if we had sort of jumped into metaprogramming and put metaprogramming on this sort of core core language, what would we have gotten? I don't know it, but it, it, I guess it's a very interesting question to ask. Yeah. Well, and I think that that what we've seen in Scala three is that the metaprogramming model is that right balance, at least for Scala, is that right balance of of giving the power that people want, but then also constraining it so that it doesn't do weird things or you know it doesn't enable the 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 craziness that you can have with macros. And so, um, yeah, it, it's I think pretty amazing what 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 you've arrived at for metaprogramming in Scala 3. It's, um, yeah, and from a user standpoint, like I haven't written metaprogramming. I'm not that good of a programmer, but but when I use it in libraries, it's just like, oh, this makes so much sense mm. and, and works well and, yeah, works well with the tools. and Yeah. So so the, the interestingly enough, enough the, so the, 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 the thing that, one of the core things is something incredibly simple, you think, and that's just inlining. So essentially inlining at typer level. And uh, that's actually, if you get that right, then a lot of things follow. And it's surprisingly hard to get right. So that's that's why most people cop out and do sort of best uh, best effort inlining it at, at the, in the back end, which... In, in my mind, doesn't doesn't help you anything because if you can't rely on these things, then then uh, there's no use of them. Basically, they're just opportunistic optimizations. Uh, but well, it I think it took a lot of a lot of research to uncover what were the problems that people are actually solving with macros, and then how do you make those problems that they're trying to solve be something that is 
that is possible, but yeah. constrained so that so that you're not having to write a macro. Yeah. And and inline is one of those examples where where I think it took some time to kind of discover like, oh, like one of the things that people are doing with macros is basically inlining, but that that wasn't Maybe that was immediately obvious or something for you. Inline but. was obvious, but afterwards, essentially, what kind of abstractions you support in the in the <clears throat> quotes and splices? So when you stage things, uh, that took a lot of going back and forth with uh, with people from the community. So, for instance, we we worked a lot with um, uh, with the protoquill people, with the quill people, uh, because they were heavy macro users in two, and they wanted to port to three and. Uh, yeah. Essentially, there was some handholding with uh, essentially Nicola, who is the PhD student. He told them that's how you do it, and there are other things where Nicola said, "Oh yeah, that's right. That doesn't work well yet. We have to change change our ways a bit." So there was a lot of iterative development that way, and not just with Nicola, but also with other people. We had Alexander on the podcast a, a while ago, so he was telling us about some of that, and yeah, it seemed like there was a really good collaboration between what he was trying to do and and Nikolai, right? Nikolai was the, the yeah, primary yeah. student yeah. on that. Um, and going kind of back and forth to arrive to a solution that that worked for both sides and maintained the 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 thing that I think is one of the most amazing things of Scala three is the dot calculus that's underneath it. And um, it's it, one of the things that as we started writing Scala three code for the book there was places where the where having that foundation of the dot, of the dot calculus would would reveal itself in like compile error messages that actually made so much sense and were so helpful and it was like oh my god like like this is like i'm sure just one of the many th- reasons why having a dot calculus is useful but but from the end user standpoint it was like oh i'm so thankful that there is actual math underneath this thing. well and also yeah. is these these error messages would come up and you're going how how does it know that how does it know yeah because <laughs> they're just too insightful uh-huh. yeah. yeah 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 so i guess yeah go go ahead um w- i would like to talk about error handling because mm-hmm. I know you've been thinking about that lately and i have kind of been immersed in it for the last couple of months in particular, like a question just came up the other day, which is like, well, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest system failures that happened happens is that when some kind of error is thrown and then it turns out that the error handling code has never been tested. So I'm wondering, ah, would there be a way for us to, is there, is there some sort of scheme that we could use to, to allow verification that the error handling code has actually been tested? I mean, I know it's, it's, it's kind of a Ooh. second level thing. Yeah, like how, how often do people write tests to test their error handling? Well, That's and it's the same point, as yeah. checked exceptions. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. the idea of checked exceptions is we're, the, the machine is going to help you make sure that you've covered all the error paths. And then it seems like, well, we need a, another level, which is to say the machine needs to help us verify that we've got tests for all of those. Yeah. And code coverage wouldn't do that? Should, should do that, no? A code coverage. Would it do it for 
error handling code, though? In principle, yes, but it probably would come up blank in most, in most <laughs> right. cases. I don't, I don't think it's been <laughs> a lot of thought. Yeah. 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 yeah, and is there any compiler? Um, could you make the compiler do it instead of a code coverage tool of being like, hey, you're not you're not handling this error case um, or something. I don't you're know. not actually testing, testing the yeah. handler testing. for the error case. I mean, the compiler so. can test, test that there's a handler, that they can check that, that, that there's a handler, but it, yeah. it, it, it can't really check that you have a test for that code. So, I mean, so even if you just put a decorator on it or something, and then it could, you know, at some point, a machine could say, and if it's code coverage, I'm fine with that. It's just, I realize now that I think about the problem, I go, oh, and if that really is where so many of these failures are happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe give us some information on, on what your experiments have been around, around exceptions and error handling. Cause I know you've been thinking about that. Yeah. So, um, so with the exceptions, um, I mean, one one thing is well. Uh, so essentially, what can you do with exceptions? You can you can uh, abolish them, not use exceptions, or you can have checked exceptions, or you can have unchecked exceptions. And I guess many languages have unchecked exceptions, uh, which have known problems, namely that exceptions should be part of your contract, and if you don't check, if you if you don't track them in the type system, then you're missing an essential piece, evidently. Uh, on the other hand, checked exceptions, as they are in Java, are incredibly painful, uh, in particular for higher-order functions, uh, because they can't be effect polymorphic. So you should say, if I have a map, to say, well, a map, what exceptions does a map throw? Well, whatever you the function it calls, those exceptions it throws. But it's it's hard to express this. Uh, it's actually possible in Java, but it's so cumbersome that people don't do that. They, they just have very sort of uh, sim simplistic uh, monomorphic exception systems that then are not flexible enough. Um, or you can sort of uh, not use exceptions at all. But that's sort of not true, right? Is it? Because I mean, who would want to put, let's say, a uh, out of memory condition in your uh, error type, or maybe also stack overflow a, is another example. Overflow, yeah, yeah, or uh, not a number, or well, not a number. It's, you can survive, but other things, division by zero, or things like that, yeah. stupid things like that. Right? So yeah. there are exceptions. There are always exceptions, and there's there will always be code that wants to handle some of these exceptions because even if you you could say, well, it's just a panic. But uh, I, I I personally, when I, I get an exception in my code base, then I want to be able to catch that and see a stack trace and uh, maybe at least at least use that for diagnosis and maybe maybe even handling it. So I think that. The question is just how, where do you draw the line in saying having like a sum type or something like that for errors and where, where, where do you have exceptions, but you'll always have exceptions. And if you have exceptions, then at least you should be able to make them checkable. So to, to put them in the type system. And the work we have been doing is sort of work out uh, ways to do that, uh, which are actually a lot more general than just exceptions. So exceptions for us is essentially just sort of a, a showcase that everybody understands uh, for this sort of work. Um, so the idea is that instead of having uh, an effect, like an, uh, like an exception, you have a capability to have that effect. 
so instead of effects, we talk about capabilities. And uh, capabilities are the classical object capabilities. That means they're typically uh, parameters that you pass to your functions that give the function then the capability to, to do certain things. And in, in Scala, that's uh, that's quite convenient because we have these implicit parameters, so we can pass these things automatically. Um, and if you do that, then you solve the problem of effect polymorphism. So your map would be fine to say your map is actually a pure function. Your map doesn't throw anything, right? So, But your map calls a function that you pass it, the function to map, and that function that can either have an effect or not, and if it has an effect, then it will just keep a capability in the closure. That's why they're called closures. They close over things, right? right. So the closure that you pass to map closes over the capability, and therefore, uh, whatever the, the, the function does, the whole expression will do. So it works out very, very nicely. So you get full effect polymorphism without changing a single little bit in the in the library, so things like that. They all essentially map, map over. Uh, but then there's one tricky bit, and that's to say uh, we then want to be able to uh, track. So some of these capabilities, I, I think most interesting capabilities, they have limited lifetime, They and which means I call them then resources. So a resource is something that you cannot use as much as you want. Uh, there might be an end to it, like a file. After the file is closed, you can't use it anymore. Uh, or uh, you might not share it. So uh, things that are accessible only from one thread and not others, for instance. So for capabilities, then, for instance, uh, capability to throw an exception, let's be concrete again, uh, that would be generated in the try expression. So the try would say, well, if I catch an exception, then, of course, the body of the try has the capability to throw that exception. And if I don't catch it, then, not, then no, because that would be an unhandled exception. So that's good. But then the problem is, well, how do I make sure that the body of the try doesn't smuggle out the capability in a closure or something like that, or an iterator that if I call it, then bomb it throws the exception, but the try has gone away and the exception is unhandled. So we need to track these capabilities in the results of functions in types. And that's basically the type work that I've been working on that makes me quite exciting because I think we can, we can uh, make some definite progress on that and not just for effects and uh, exceptions, but also, for instance, that would be a solution to this so-called what color is your function problem and many other problems out there. So it seems that the same pattern comes again and again and again, that you say you need to have a handle what escapes sort of in the result of a computation. Yeah. yeah. So that sounds to me, I mean, in my limited understanding, that sounds to me like what we put inside of a monad. We go, oh, it's not just the result, but it's the result and the capabilities together. Yes, yes. Good, okay. good point, yeah. Uh, so you can do that with monads, uh, but uh, it's typically a lot more local. So with a monad, is sort of at every step, I have to do the monad composition. And if there are several monads, it gets complicated. I have to use transformers. So that's why I want to have one of these Uber monads like, like Zio or something like that. Um, 
but uh, with capabilities, they scope. So a capability and an outer scope is available everywhere. And that makes it a lot more flexible. So I don't need, so basically I can do this thing with same thing with monads, but I need to do a lot more plumbing than if I used capabilities. That's, that's the main advantage of those. And is, is this the same thing as algebraic effects? I've heard like some of the newer languages have been, have been using the concept algebraic effects as, I don't know. Is that the same thing? As, it's as... not the same thing. It can be used for algebraic effects as well. So algebraic effects is basically one one way. The most accessible way to look at it is they're all in a way or another uh, resumable uh, exceptions. So essentially, they're a thing you can throw. You can go to a handler, and then the handler can decide to essentially go back to the original code that's true with some additional arguments to that code. So essentially, in the when at the point where I throw, I can have to be prepared to essentially be resumed with some additional results. So that's essentially the, the, the classic pattern. And I can do that if I have uh, continuations and I can code up everything. So typically, these algebraic effects, they sort of are sort of ways to dress up and structure programs that otherwise would just run with continuations. Continuations are sort of the low-level, unstructured way of, of dealing with these things. And um, the ability to have these things, like with exceptions, can also be wrapped in capabilities. So that's basically the thing. And that gives you, I believe, the same advantages as for the other effects, that, namely that you get polymorphism for free and, and these sort of things. Yeah. So the... Um when you're when you're saying okay a function doesn't return enough information so we're does that mean are you returning a capability now or is the capability a thing that's returned along with the result how is no that? the capabilities no no you you pass it into the function so if if I write in Java uh, a function f and it returns a string and it throw and it can throw I/O exception, so I/O exception is an effect uh, you, you can say. Mm -hmm. And in the capability model, I would say I have a function. It takes a parameter which is a can throw I/O exception. That's a capability. It takes that as a parameter, and it just returns a string. And that's now more general because you're saying one of the things that capabilities can do is talk about exceptions, but they could talk about all kinds of... So you've generalized the concept of the function doing more than just returning a value. Yeah, yeah. And okay. it's, it's also not, not only effects, uh, but a capability could also, for instance, be... Uh, uh, access to a piece of memory or, or things like that. So you could you could say, for instance, if you have like region allocation or something like that, a capability could model that as well. Capabilities, or it could be some piece of security access rights or things like that. It's capabilities so are very very general, yeah. fundamental. It's yeah. So like, I mean, the like capabilities have been with us for a long time now. So I mean, we sort of we they sort of pop up time and time again in software for, for 40 years or something like that. Um, uh -huh. There have been operating systems based on capabilities. There's even hardware There's a, called Cherry. I don't know whether you've come across that. That's uh, it's a thing from Microsoft. They essentially have, they, essentially they have a new um, hardware where essentially every uh, 
access to an object can be essentially hardware checked as a capability in, 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 in the hardware. And that's sort of meant to be sort of a more hacker-proof uh, way to, 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 to do that. It's sort of... Um, it's, it's it's a new fa fairly new development but uh, it, it might might become interesting it huh. also sounds like it might um, replace some of the things that you would do with a macro system not everything but some of the things macro system um, well in other words you might have solved it with a macro system in the past but now a capability would yeah probably yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that that's mm -hmm. you can do a lot of things with macros yeah yeah it's it's interesting how we one of the places where we have a lot of bugs in software typically is around resource management that when you call something you have no idea what resources are being used and if you're going to exhaust them and if something goes wrong if it needs to be closed and you know just right. it it just it seems like an endless source of of bugs and now we're saying that hey why don't we why don't we have the compiler check these things yeah. so that we can be sure that things that are resources and need to be managed are going to be um verified at the like by the call like when you call it but then that that information is propagated up the chain right yeah. is is like the the big piece that you've been working on with Scala is like like that propagation of that information through the through the whole chain of calls is that the right way to look at capabilities yeah. or yes in a sense but we were sort of turning things around so instead of uh, pushing them up the calls and the result we push them down the calls in the arguments that's that's sort of this idea of flipping the thing to 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 do capabilities but yes otherwise yeah exactly so essentially the whole question of resources and when can you use them and when are they, they no longer available that is potentially a key to to handle that yeah yeah and that that makes it exciting i think yeah, I mean, it seems like a like we have the opportunity with this to knock out a whole class of bugs at compile time. Exactly. <laughs> because I mean, if you look at it, like I mean, I, I as you know, I I really like functional programming, but in a sense, functional programming is also cheating. Functional programming is pretending there are no resources. So essentially, right, right. I, I everything is available. I have a garbage collector. I can do whatever. And then in the end, I might construct a program, which then is a monad or something like that. And that's then the thing that I construct that actually does the heavy lifting and deals with those resources. But since it's in the monad, it's sort of away from the language. It's whatever right. rules the monad defines for these things. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I have the impression that uh, it could be quite beneficial if languages and type systems could reason about these things. Yeah, and... 100% on board with having the compiler do more to alleviate runtime issues. Like, the, like, I, are there people that are not on board with that idea? I guess like people get upset that compilers take too long and whatever, like there's a trade-off to that. But, but you know, it takes a really long time is diagnosing runtime issues. Yeah, and yeah. so for me, I'm, I would much rather have the compiler tell me, give me a sense of safety so that I don't have to deal with runtime issues. Yeah. Well, there's a trade-off, no? Uh, the, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, the, the, um, one of the biggest trade-offs is that traditionally the developer takes a productivity hit 
exactly yeah with yeah. with the hope that they're that that runtime error is never going to happen and i think that that's the hard thing is designing the programming language such that the developer productivity hit is not significant yeah well, and, and the libraries i should say and the libraries yeah. because mm -hmm. essentially in any in any uh, sort of decent programming language you can do a lot with types so then the question is how much do you want to do and how much do you essentially push into the api of your library because that will increase the learning curve of your users if the types get too complicated and i think a language can only has only a limited uh, degree or to which they can influence that because in the end it's 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 the core libraries that will determine that and yeah. I, I i do believe that scala has by and uh, quite a few Scala libraries uh, from within TypeSafe and outside have gone overboard with that and have become uh, where where more complicated than they should have been. Just, just yeah. To yeah, I think another example of this is like value dependent types. Like it, I think it's it's a good idea that that I can have a compiler throw in uh, a compiler based on the value of of mm -hmm. something you know non-empty list is i think a canonical example yeah, yeah. um but i don't use like in scala i don't really often use those libraries that give me that that capability because it makes things really painful yeah. <laughs> and so so i'm just like i'm just gonna assume that my list is never empty or, you know, whatever it may be. And imagine that I'm going to always be on the happy path, which could result in a runtime error. Exactly. Um, but I think that the, the hope is that we, we figure out ways for the, the right path to be the easy path. Yeah. And, exactly. and it takes a long time to kind of discover how to do that well. And, that, yeah, I think for generally yeah. value dependent types, we've not really figured out how to make how to make value dependent types the like easy the easy path and the right path. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. if a if a type is a set of values, then what value dependent types do, I think, is allow you to um, figure out information about the types based on their values rather than just saying, okay, you got to set up the rules uh, independently of that. I don't know. I'm just, I, I've still been trying to figure out the. Well, it's a, it's an, there's an interesting example that we could dive into, which, which Scala kind of reveals is there are, there are things you can do on collections in Scala that will fail if your list is empty. So um, what happens if you call sum on a list? that is empty. What, what do you, what do you return there? And so Scala could say, uh, one way to deal with it would be that some returns an option of mm -hmm. an int or whatever. And then every time you call some, you have to deal with the fact that, that it's an option. <laughs> and so that gets really painful. And so in my code, I most often will call some assuming that I'm never going to be on the unhappy path of being in an empty list, but definitely a possible source of, of bugs. And so the alternative would be to, to 
uh, use a, a data structure that guarantees that your list is not empty. Or and a so fold. if you're in and what is that? Or a fold. Uh, a fold you could do a uh, you can do a sum with a fold, but you and give it that give it initial, initial value. value. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Actually, yeah, so some, some could. Bad example. Some is a fold. I think some some of an empty. It's implemented is, as a fold, but, but, but it probably has a, like a, a cert that says. But let's say max max would be a thing. So max or min, uh, I don't think they would give you. Uh, uh, I think they probably are defined only on non-empty or head or something like that. Head, of course, would on, would not work for empty lists. Yeah, you're right. Some is a bad example because you, zero is you yeah. know that zero is is the the logical. Not on a non-empty on a empty list, zero is the result of some. But yeah, max and min would be a better example. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, you could have. I, I, I'm also I'm neither a fan of option because I think it's just kicking the can down the road. Uh, somebody has to deal with these options. Literally. Um, <laughs> and I'm not a fan of non-empty list or type like that. All I, either typically. Uh, I mean, it's always. Depends. So non-empty list, where where things like non-empty list get get annoying as a user, is that if you have a non-empty list type, and then you call filter on it, yes, you yeah. no longer can be in non-empty no. list yeah. land. You 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 have to then go into the case where my list after a filter could either be empty or non-empty. Exactly. And, yeah. and it just gets really painful to yeah. to. So. I think there's some tricky pieces there that modeling modeling the real world is sometimes really hard. And so sometimes we just assume that we're on the happy path and never going to be off that. But Well, modeling yeah. always makes some assumptions. It's always based on an abstraction. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and how far, how far do you take all this? maybe depends on your use case. If I was writing code for a Mars rover, I'd probably want to be really sure about things. Whereas for other systems, it's like maybe it's going to blow up sometimes. And, and, that's and okay. you want to make sure that all your exception handling code was tested. Yeah, <laughs> or I put a test in. Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, we always have tests as well. So it's but not but always you want the machine to tell you that, yes, you've tested all of your exception handling code. Yeah, that's yeah. that would be more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you mentioned um, before we started recording some of the Rust-like stuff that you were working on in Scala. Is that the capability stuff? Yeah, that's the capability stuff. And we're not there yet to do Rust, but sort of uh, we can talk about resources and Rust talks as well about resources in a way uh, of, of speaking. So in that sense, we're approaching it. And one could possibly do things that, that Rust also does, maybe manual memory allocation and safe, safe concurrency and these sort of things. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a super exciting area of development just because there's a whole class of bugs that hopefully will go away when our compilers will tell us that yeah. <laughs> we're, we're um, not dealing with resources uh, in a safe way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I think that, let's say, the Java 
thread system and concurrency uh, memory model for for threading is just i believe in 10 years we, uh, we will all believe that's completely insane uh, the way the way things were defined i mean you mean the how, threads how, and locks yeah and and that essentially every object absolutely every object can be accessed by every thread at any time unless you put in a synchronized and these sort of things it seems terribly unsafe and unstructured to me and uh and sort of a constant source of bugs. So, so the way to 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 deal with uh, with these things to say, well, by default, these things belong to a single thread, and if I want to make them shareable, then I have to explain, uh, declare that explicitly. Seems seems to be much much better. Well, I think that's why they ended up deprecating so many of the thread methods. Yeah, yeah, but there's still enough to stay to to remain. Oh yeah, yeah, you can still make yeah, a mess yeah. of it. I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, it's a super. Uh, uh, solid and performance system. It's an amazing piece of engineering, but I think the sort of the the user level access to it, it's, I think, is uh, in ten years from now we'll say, well, this was just way too easy to like foot gun, yeah. foot gun ourselves. Foot gun, way, way too much foot gun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think of threads and locks as something that you only do in the small, and that it doesn't scale. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It just gets unwieldy way too easily and way too quickly uh have you been following the loom stuff and and do you like is there any way that scala will be able to take advantage of that system yeah we did look at that uh so um the so there there was uh, we had a, a a workshop paper about uh, uh when was that uh, half a year back uh the workshop was called hope uh uh, and um, that was about uh, some work that a postdoc with me did on uh, mapping um, essentially um, uh, a monadic reflection uh, to to um, to uh, to use either Loom or one of these um, fiber sort of, system, uh, some other fiber system, cat's yeah. effect systems. Yeah, that you can essentially use Loom as a as an alternative. Uh, Backend for these for, for 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 fibers and um, so that that's interesting because you can use Loom to sort of code up continuations in a way it has it's it's not perfect it has some memory leaks uh, at the moment um, and with that you can code up algebraic effects or or, or other things uh, so um, so we I follow it with a lot of interest um, and. Would be great to have it in in a production JVM. Yeah, you used yeah, the that, phrase that, "monadic reflection," I think, when you were explaining that. Yeah, that's essentially. Um, so, if you look at async um, uh, async await, so that's just for essentially for futures, and then the question is, well, if we have code like that, and it can work with any monad. So essentially, you you code up your monad could be Zio or Cat's Effect. That's the two we demonstrated, uh, uh, or something else. Uh, and uh, you can essentially still use async await out of the box with these things. So program in direct style, but essentially uh, the underlying runtime semantics is a given monad. So that's what monadic reflection. Uh, that's what we meant with it. Yeah, huh. that's cool. Uh, it will be interesting to see as we get Loom and as we get capabilities, how the programming model evolves for people who are writing, writing, you know, non-blocking yeah. stuff 
uh, but then also expressing the the resource management piece of it. Yeah, since yeah. I think capabilities have a lot to offer there because uh, I mentioned this what color is your function problem before. So yeah. essentially, uh, the problem is that that you say if you do it the way you do it uh, with uh, essentially explicit futures or uh, suspend functions in Kotlin or things like that, then your world falls into essentially two hemispheres. One is async, the other is sync, and it's hard to hard to essentially bridge the gaps, and it's very hard to have functions that work for both. Uh, and um, you can solve all this if you have a runtime like Loom, because then you can suspend anyway. Your runtime lets lets you do that, or let's say go 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 routines and go or things like that. If your run runtime can do it, then that's fine. So the question is, does that answer all your, all our questions, and also does it answer all our problems? And the and and the answer is no, probably not, because in a in in a in the end suspending is an effect so your program is different whether it can suspend or not and if you just map everything to uh, to loom or goroutines then you hide that distinction then you don't have a distinction between async and sync anymore so you don't want that either there is a distinction uh, async is an effect uh, but you want to be effect polymorphic and then we come with capabilities and with capabilities we can be effect polymorphic and voila so that's sort of the the approach there huh. Bruce, as we've been trying to understand polymorphism outside of outside of the the bounds of inheritance, uh, the the polymorphic effects that's got to be like another dimension to polymorphism that that um, be fun well, to he explore. Said effect polymorphism. Effect polymorphism. Look, it just means that something as simple as map. It throws an exception if the thing you pass it throws an exception. It blocks if the thing you pass it blocks. It just means that these sort of general things can be effectful or not, or have different effects depending on what you pass them. That's that's all it really is, and it's something that should be should be evident that it should work, but only it doesn't right now. It, it really doesn't. Right. So, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Um, well, you know, I, I am I love Scala three, and you've done so much great work to to make it just a really enjoyable programming language, um, and yeah, and then continue to innovate on some other other fun and very useful things to to make the it's it's like you know Bruce and I called this podcast the Happy Path Programming Podcast because we really do like see that the future is this convergence of the happy path, the, the easy way and the right way. And mm -hmm. Scala is definitely one of the, the places where, where I think that is really happening. Um, so yeah, that's cool. Um, what else? What, yeah. What else is on your mind, Martin, as we wrap up, um, what else is exciting in Scala or think, what are you thinking about? In, in Scala three or beyond. Well, if you if you ask me about favorite features of Scala three beyond indentation, there's lots <laughs> lots more, of course. Yeah. So, 
So uh, type classes, I I really like the uh, the first um, class yeah. type class support. Um, and you you posted on Twitter the example of of uh, doing what I was trying to do in in uh, in Kotlin with with a new experimental feature in Kotlin and the type class Scala three type class support. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, right. which was yeah. it's so clean and wonderful and yeah, I I really appreciate um, that that feature of Scala three. But yeah, oh, what else for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a question. Okay, I've been trying to kind of form how to describe type classes in my mind. And it's kind of like a default argument in a way. Yeah, good good point. We had a long when we discussed the design of type classes, we had a long discussion with uh Howie Yi, um uh, who wanted uh to push for that, to make them much more like default arguments. In the end, we didn't do it, but there's definitely a lot of overlap and the different design could have pushed that further. Uh, so in a sense, it's there is definitely overlap. Um, technically, the, only dif the main difference from a user point of view is uh, I get a default parameter. I still have to write open parents, close parents. I have to say, well, this function, it has takes these arguments and then some of them I leave out and I pass them by default. And of course, the default parameters, the, the default argument is given in the function definition. They are defined what it is. Whereas with type classes and, and, and general context parameters, I don't write the parents at all. So it just gets added as an additional, essentially, parameter block. And what it is depends on on the context where I am and what I what I enclose. So it, it gathers it from the enclosing scope rather than it gathers it from the enclosing scope. That's the main that's the main difference. And we so we we sort of stumbled into that in Scala two. Uh, it was sort of more a, like a, a discovery because initially Scala two had um, some something which I'm not which I now want to get rid of, actually, and that's implicit conversions. So that actually came first in Scala 2. Uh, and that came because uh, at the time there was a, a lot of people were worried about this problem of retroactive extension, that you say a class uh, can define, implement only those interfaces that were given when you defined the class, and now what if they're new interfaces, what do you do, uh, how, how can you solve that? And uh, I... Uh, didn't find a good way to so, so I said, well, the best we can really do is sort of make it implement the impl interface by an implicit conversion. So that's how they ended up in Scala. And then we defined the rules for them. And in the end, we, we said, well, yes, but we can actually also have implicit parameters. And implicit parameters can do type classes. So I had a, a Paper, uh, a talk actually uh, in 2006 or something like that about poor man's type classes. That's what it was huh. called. And those were these implicit parameters. I presented that to a bunch of Haskell folks at the time and they didn't quite understand what, what I was up to, but never mind. Uh, so that's how, how they came came about. And um, now with, uh, and and I think they, they had some some things that sort of were just the way historically, the way they, they were developed and why they came out of implicit conversions. So in Scala 3, we now sort of uh, 
put them in properly and essentially fixed a lot of the the, the, the problems that we had before. Uh, so, uh, and I think they work much better now and, and they're much cleaner and uh, hopefully less frightening than the old implicits were. So now the only thing we still have to do, and I think we're getting there, uh, bit by bit is actually to get rid of implicit conversions so that would be nice then we have only the good parts um, well and with the extension functions now it's yeah that's, I, I, I feel like the developer experience is such that i don't need the implicit conversions anymore because i just add the extension function and call it and it's it's fine so could you say that uh type classes are a way to uh, provide defaults that could be changed if you need to? Uh, yes, you can say that. Uh, so one way, one high-level way to talk about it is uh, to say, well, we, have, we know about type inference. The compiler will infer argument types to functions for us. What type classes are, they're really value inference. So uh, we give the type uh, that we want in the parameter, and we tell the compiler to synthesize a canonical instance for that for that type. There can be only one, uh, or one more specific. Otherwise, there would be an ambiguity. So, for instance, the typical example is an ordering, where we say, well, we need an ordering for this type, and we have orderings for various types, and then we can make up new orderings, like a list ordering. I can make up if I have an ordering of the elements, I can de de derive from that an ordering from the list, and so on. So the compiler will just synthesize these values, which are typically closures that or objects that that define these uh, that de that implement these interfaces. That's that's what basically in the larger setting type classes are. Uh, yeah, it seems and I, like the other would... use case that we've that we've actually turned on in our book code is the um, equality. The uh, is it called multiversal equality or it's multiversal it's... equality? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where you just need evidence that this type can be compared with that other type. And, uh, yep. And sometimes yeah. these these things are even compiled like multiversal equality is compile time only. So in the end, you don't actually need a value. You just need sort of some evidence that the compiler gives you to say, okay, by the fact that I could construct this, it means that this type is comparable to this other type. Yeah, so, it took me a while to get that because I and I guess some of it comes from Java. In Java, you can you can compare anything, uh, and but. In Scala, you can, with type classes, turn on this thing that won't let something compile unless you yeah. have provided the evidence or the type class that two things can be compared. Yeah. And But it, it, it took my brain a little while to understand, oh, my type class is not actually doing the equals checking. It is just telling the compiler that these two things can be compared. And That's one um, way to, to use them. Yeah, of course, there could be, I mean, that the ordering type class does does right. do the ordering checking. Yeah. But yeah. I, I found that really, really useful for uh, large-scale refactorings because that's all, that was sort of the single gap where you say, well, let's change all, all, all this bunch of elements from this type to that type. And usually you would say, well, type, type checker has my back, except for equality, it hadn't. Right? So <laughs> that's all right. Your, your equality tests and contains tests and the derived thing just would silently fail. And that's why people... Well, I, I previously I, I was super scared to do some of these things, and now, now with with that, uh, it's fearless re refactoring. Really, I, I I jump in and refactor the uh, arbitrary large parts of that without without fear. It also yep. seems like type classes might 
solve the dependency injection thing that yeah yeah of course yeah in a sense because it means you you can pass a context mm -hmm. uh, and that's dependency injection so you rely on something that you get sort of implicitly uh, that's mm -hmm. in our uh, scala 3 compiler we rely on that basically everywhere so uh, essentially everything that we do almost every method that we have actually gets gets a context and the dependency injection compiler is very fine-grained because you you start with a root context and as you go down your program you enrich it with a lot of information of what you have seen on the way and and that's that's uh, sort of that drives a lot of things so so that in my in my perspective works uh, actually really well so so uh. and the context would that have to like can you add new operations as you go down or does it have to fit the liskov substitution principle yeah it has to fit so uh, okay. context has to you have to have sort of a a uh, encompassing context encompassing context which okay. is actually uh uh some some somewhere where uh, we do we use uh, mix in compositions which sometimes goes under the name cake pattern uh, now for these contexts i think dick wall they called them parfait but as a, like a small cake <laughs> uh, yeah because it means because, because this context sort of it gives you stuff from many different modules of the compiler you want to sort of pass them everywhere but each one just picks essentially some parts of the context that that's interesting for them hmm. so you don't want to define it all together because that that way you wouldn't really have good encapsulation so in the end it turns out to be essentially a mix in a, a, a trait composition of of several traits that have that essentially define different aspects of what this con uh, context is okay hmm. Well, that was awesome. Uh, thank you for all you do with Scala, and and um, it's yeah, I love it, and and has been such an enjoyable thing for me to write code in. And so, thank you, Martin, and uh, thank you thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Good. That's that's our goal. <laughs> <laughs> Accomplished. Awesome. All right. Thanks.